This week on Myths and Legends, it's a tale about a woman who hits the high seas. Along the way, we'll learn that telescopes are not great pickup lines, and that all you need for a disguise worthy of taking over a kingdom is a hat. The creature this week is a one-footed jumper with its own built-in umbrella that happens to be its foot. This is Myths and Legends, episode 246, Pretty Pretty Pirate. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today's episode comes from Polish and Jewish folklore, and it's a story of a pirate princess. I don't want to give too much away, so we'll just dive right in with a small group of people on a journey through the woods. Wait here, I'll be back soon, the man said, leaving his walking stick with a group of traveling companions. Truthfully, they weren't so much companions as they were servants, seeing as how the man was the king. But roughing it in the wilderness for several days had brought them all together. For a time, at least. Out here, all pretense melted away when everyone slept near the bathroom hole. Really, why hadn't they put more distance between the cots and the bathroom hole? The king would bring that up at the next meeting. Anyway, the king straightened his shoulders, fluffed his hat hair, and eyed the cave opening at the top of the last climb. There it was, the sorcerer's cave, the beautiful lair where the childless ruler would ask for an heir. It was his last chance. I mean, nobody really goes into a place called a sorcerer's cave if they have other options. The group said goodbye, and off the king went. The climb proved more difficult than he anticipated, and more than once he took a slight misstep, but soon he stood at the mouth of the cave. Just before he stepped inside, however, a voice to his left made him jump. Ha ha ha! Where do you think you're going, big guy? Around the corner came a man with oddly similar hat hair, an air of regality, and impossible. A superior beard? Bow to the king, the king commanded. Beard guy only laughed. Uh, what's so funny? Bow to the king, beard guy mocked. We're both kings, bud, obviously. There was no other explanation for the magnificent beard, and also the trail of attendants holding royal banners and the gifts lined up behind him. Well, great. This was awkward now. Except it kind of wasn't. The second king bellowed with open arms. There was only one reason for kings to visit this particular cave and the sorcerer within. They must both be childless. This is where you came to buy babies. I mean, conjure babies? How did this whole process work, actually? Regardless, they were going to come away from here with some heirs. And so, both kings linked arms and entered the cave together. The sorcerer made quick work of his double-booked appointment. In return, he asked for... nothing at all. It was a strange business model for a sorcerer, but clearly this guy was all about disrupting the current system with a new approach. He'd operate at a loss for a few years, sign some A-list royals, B-list nobles, and then get bought out by a bigger sorcerer. Anyway... The outcome of the king's joint visit was this. In short order, both kings would have a child. One a boy, and the other a girl. 
the kids would grow up to marry each other, but their row getting to that point would make or break the future. If the couple married without the kings standing in their way, wonderful blessings would overflow throughout the land. However, there would be hardship and suffering if either king tried to keep the royals apart. After that, the sorcerer announced that it was the end of their time, and the kings went outside. They stopped a moment to chat. This was perfect. Both kings could finally start using all their stocked-away dad jokes because they were both going to be dads really soon. One servant tried to explain that dad joke was just a phrase that you didn't really have to be a dad to... But the kings were ignoring that. They were already mid-pinky promise. Their future children, even before they were born, were engaged. Class dismissed, Professor S. announced as the bell rang. All the students shuffled outside, and the instructor sank into a chair with a grin. Professor S., or rather, Professor Sorcerer, couldn't believe it. Having boarded up his baby cave business years ago on account of his failed business model, he was beat out by Airbnb, which did the same basic thing, helped royals have heirs, but was also a bed and breakfast. The sorcerer had pivoted into education and was now the top instructor and the, well, only instructor at the Study Abroad Institute for Young Royals. And it just so happened that he had taught two new students today, a prince and a princess. He recognized their names immediately and knew them to be the children of the two kings he'd seen long ago. It made him feel old, and proud of his prior work, but mostly old. Semester after semester, the prince and the princess took classes together and spent all their free time by each other's side. The sorcerer never said a word about their destiny, and instead watched their love blossom and bloom naturally. After graduation, however, the royals went their separate ways, back to their home kingdoms, and the sorcerer, well, he finally retired for good. At home, however, all was not well. The kingdoms were fine, busy, of course, although that was a good thing. What wasn't good was the fact that the prince and princess missed one another. Each moped around day after day, not eating, growing weak, and losing sleep. They were like the sun without the moon, Bert without Ernie, cookies without milk. Seriously, what is wrong? The prince's parents asked him one day from the doorway. He was on his back, with an arm draped over his eyes, and the prince finally shared that he had met someone at college. She was great, smart, athletic, funny, and a princess too. He could spend every day with her and never grow bored. And she told him the same thing. Okay, why don't you guys, like, get married then? She literally checks the only box that matters to us. Princess, the queen suggested. Or, you know, if not get married, just try to reach out to her at all. The prince let up. Yeah, that made a lot of sense, actually. So the prince told his parents all about the girl he'd met, who she was, and what kingdom she was in. It turned out that the king recognized the other king's name, and in a dreamy, rippling flashback, he recalled the double-booked appointment in the cave, the big ask, the sorcerer who promised there would be a child, the sworn betrothal, and the prophecy about the future. It all came back to him. Okay, so the king would write a letter to old beard guy, and they would make this happen. Unfortunately, and incredibly, the king with the better beard had also forgotten that he'd trekked to a sorcerer's cave to ask for a child long ago. 
They were kings. They had a lot going on and couldn't be asked to remember every world-spanning trip to ask something of a sorcerer. Even worse, he had already promised his daughter in marriage to the son of a different king who was rich and powerful and frankly, pretty scary. His beard went down mid-belly. Also, he would start a war and execute the king if he went back on his deal. It was a bad move for many reasons and one that Princess's father didn't think that he could remedy while still keeping his head. So, when the sorcerer's pick number one showed up with a compelling letter from an old royal acquaintance, the Beard King did the only thing he could think of on the fly and made all sorts of excuses why their wedding should be delayed. He dug his hole deeper and deeper. And now the Prince of Prophecy, not the prince with the scary dad, was staying over in an upstairs room until who knew when all while waiting for the king to come explain how, when he said, yes, you can propose, he really meant, not right now. The king fumed. Ah, the direct consequences of his actions. <clears throat> so annoying. And so it was that the prince stayed in one room, without seeing the princess at all, and the princess stayed in another room, without knowing the prince was there at all. But destiny was destiny. Fate was fate. And side conversations between castle staff were loud and echoed down the marble halls. That was how the princess learned that her man was there, and in which room. Soon, they both knew of one another, and met late at night, after everyone had gone to bed. The princess shared the news that her father had promised her to someone else, which was problematic for many reasons, they both agreed, and so the couple found a solution. They would run away. Together. Right. Now. We'll catch up with the runaway bride and runaway groom, but that will be right after this. There, I see land, the princess called out, pointing to a nearby island dotted with loaded fruit trees along the coast. She and her love had stolen away in the middle of the night on the visiting prince's ship. Just them, alone at last. It was great, still was actually, only now they were really hungry. The thing about leaving the moment you think about it with zero preparation is that you didn't prepare at all. Got it, said the prince. We're headed in. The prince stood below the tree with a cloth sack while the princess shimmied up and began plucking juicy fruit from the branches two at a time. The aroma made her mouth water and she moved quickly. They would eat when they collected all they could. But as she glanced to their boat, she saw not one but two on the open water, and the second one glimmered. There were men on that ship, with swords out. Great. They had company. It was a merchant's son, leading a large group of burly, no-nonsense types onto the beach. The princess had told the prince to hide in the bushes. But here, take her royal ring, and don't come out for any reason. The man, from the ship docked in the harbor, crunched in the sand. Oh, hey there. He had spotted her from the sea with his telescope here. He was, you know, on his ship. He was a merchant's son. He had lots of silks, spices, citrus so they don't get scurvy. He was the complete package. How about she come down from that tree? They could get her something to eat and she could become his wife. The princess said that she was okay with the first two, not so much with the last part. She was kind of in a serious thing. 
I would hope it's serious. The merchant's son beamed. They were engaged after all. Here, if she wasn't going to come down by choice, he was going to chop the tree down so his betrothed could careen safely toward the ground. The princess could read the room, or beach. She knew the implication of what the merchant's son was saying. Either she comes with him, as his betrothed, or he was going to cut her down from the tree and take her aboard as his prisoner. She descended the tree, eyes on the bush where her actual betrothed was, praying that he made the smart decision and stayed put. In the end, she took the hand of the merchant's son, but only on two conditions. One, that the young man not try any funny business until after the wedding, and two, that he stop asking who she was or where she came from. After the wedding, she would tell all. But not yet. Done, the young man beamed, motioning her aboard his vessel. Ah, his first kidnapped bride, his parents were going to be so proud. By the time they docked, the mood on the deck had lightened considerably. Laughter and music floated on the wind, and the princess set down her instrument. She'd been thinking, in order to start things off with her future in-laws on the right foot, what if the son went on ahead to break the news of their engagement alone? You know, so they weren't taken off guard by him wanting to marry some nobody he met on an island. The young man thought a moment, yeah, that might be good. And she would just, I'll wait here on the boat, she smiled. The merchant's son moved to kiss his fiancée, but she stepped away. Ah, 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 not until the wedding. Once the merchant's son disappeared into the crowd, the princess turned to the crew that remained with the ship. She was getting married. How about they celebrate with a drink? Or ten. The merchant's son returned a little while later, with his entire family in tow. Except the boat was nowhere to be seen. This, this is what you wanted us to see, son? The merchant grunted, because I'm seeing a whole lot of nothing. And it was true. The ship, the merchant's merch, and this fabulous fiancé that definitely existed was gone. All along the deck, the crew lay in various degrees of drunken stupor and sleep. It was a complete bungle. So much so, that the merchant decided right then and there that he was disowning his son. He kicked him out and forced him into a life of begging. In one instant, he who had so much found himself with nothing at all. Out on the high sea, the princess sailed straight for home. It was no easy task, seeing as how she represented a crew of one, but she managed. There was also a slight issue of not being quite sure which way was home, but she had the general direction right. On the left was an unknown island, and beyond that was probably... She paused. What now? Someone up the shoreline must have seen her boat, because now there was an even bigger ship, headed right toward her with a sizable group of men guiding the sails. They turned at the last minute, landed on the deck, and turned both ships toward land. A gruff-looking sailor grinned at the princess. There was someone who would very much like to meet her. Wait, one person on board? That's amazing. Bring her in. I have to meet her, said the island king. He had spied the seemingly empty ship from afar with his even longer telescope, and commanded his people to bring it ashore. 
he thought it was like a ghost ship or something. It never occurred to him that someone might actually be on board. At first sight, he knew she was a royal. The way she walked, talked, and even sat gave her away, he said. At that realization, he had wasted no time in suggesting they get married. For the second time, the princess agreed to marry a complete stranger with a telescope. But this time, she had three conditions. First, the standard no-touching rule. Not until the marriage was official. The king nodded, absolutely, went without saying. Second, no unloading of her ship until after the marriage was official. That way, the people would witness their new queen giving off all sorts of treasures to the kingdom. After all, she couldn't have them thinking she had arrived empty-handed. It seemed reasonable, and the king agreed. He was also a fan of surprises. Lastly, the princess asked for 11 ladies-in-waiting. That was it. Again, this request seemed reasonable. So the king chose 11 daughters from among his highest-ranking nobles to be his new queen's attendants. And with that, he set to work planning the most elaborate wedding of the century. A day before the wedding, a servant walked sheepishly before the king. He, he had drawn the short stick to be the bearer of bad news. Good morning, your majesty, he greeted. Lovely day to get ready for a wedding, sire. Shall I bring your breakfast into the bedroom? The princess is gone. The king sat up straight in bed. What, what did you say? Uh, I said I'll be in with the breakfast soon. We thought the ship was stolen, but really she took it. Uh, the king, uh, what? Bring in the ladies-in-waiting, he barked. Question them all. Find out where she went. <laughs> right away, sir. Happy to comply. They all went with her, and they're all gone. Just then, eleven angry dads barged into the king's bedchamber, each demanding where their daughter had gone. How could the king let this happen? How incompetent could he be? Shouts of possible solutions popcorned from among the dads. A summer execution. A coup. Yeah, and a bad haircut on purpose, like a Mark Zuckerberg haircut, came the final suggestion. The other dads turned, okay, now that's, that's too far. This was a huge mistake the king had made, but whoa, okay, let's backpedal this a little bit. Instead, it was decided that the king would be removed from his position and banished from the kingdom forever. He would be forced into a life of begging. As the king's adornments were torn from his cloak, and the nobles supplied him with a cartoon-style bindle, the, you know, the knapsack on a stick, the man who had started the day with so much found himself ending the day looking up at the castle with nothing at all. We'll catch up with the princess and her new friends, but that will be right after this. It was late morning on the high seas, and the first of the noble daughters was waking up as the princess stepped away from the wheel. She would tell them all straight. Last night, all 12 ladies had boarded the ship. The daughters had never been on a boat before, and setting foot on a boat, let's face it, wasn't something just anybody could do. The mere idea was thrilling, but to be actually doing it? Feet on floating wood? Uh, this was amazing. You could write a song about it with T-Pain. It was that big of a deal for the guests. And what Groupon boat experience would be complete without something to drink? For her ladies-in-waiting, the princess had brought out the good stuff. And soon, all of her new friends had fallen asleep. 
in, quote, a pile. Without hesitation, the princess had untied the ropes, opened the sails, she was a well-seasoned solo sailor at this point, and headed toward the horizon under the cover of darkness. There were plenty of questions from the group, of course. Why were they out at sea? Would they be going back to shore now? Wasn't this kidnapping? And what did the princess mean by, get to your stations right now, a storm is coming, I'm serious, all those other questions can wait? <laughs> so cryptic. As though on cue, lightning flashed, thunder boomed, and rain began pouring down in sheets. There really was no time like the present to start learning how to control a boat, because presently, they were about to sink. And the princess immediately began shouting directives to each of the ladies. It was glorious, the teamwork, the montage that ensued. In a matter of moments, calluses formed, new hair flew wild, and each woman was turned into the most beautifully rugged pirates that ever lived. It was an experience primed for a masterclass, but there was no time to work out a deal, because before they knew it, they had come to another island. Supplies were running low, so the pirates headed inland to gather food. In a matter of minutes, a handful of menacing guys had jumped from their hiding places, waving their swords like madmen. It was an ambush. They said they were pirates. The princess drew her own sword and shouted back, no, they were pirates. Tensions hung in the air until, one by one, the men stepped out of their fighting stances. Wait, they were all pirates. Suddenly, this was like the first ever pirate con, which is actually a thing. They were complimenting each other's outfits, comparing weapons, discussing loot. It was awesome. That is, until one of the men snapped out of it and jumped atop a large stump, demanding silence. They would see what the boss man had to say about all this. Standing before their chief, the princess explained that while they were all pirates here, each group existed due to differing tactics. The guys used force, but the women used brains, wisdom, subterfuge. Together, they would be unstoppable. And what do you know? There are 12 of us, 12 of you, the princess said in closing. The chief's eyes grew wide. Oh, yeah, she was right. They had enough for a full soccer team and a coach. Each. To the field, boys, the chief shouted. <clears throat> Boss, uh, yeah, one of the pirates whispered, I think she meant that we could, you know, couple up. And so it was decided. Naturally, the chief and the princess were the power couple, and the rest worked themselves out. To sweeten the deal further, the incoming pirates offered to divvy up their ship full of goods among the pairs. Love and riches for all? This called for a celebration. I mean, they were pirates, so very low celebration bar. But, you know, this met it. Long into the night they partied, and all the while, the men gulped the wine while the women sipped, and eventually, the hosts fell into a deep sleep. The daughters looked to the princess, waiting for their signal. Each one had a man and a plan. They also had daggers. Hours later, the princess and her ladies-in-waiting stood watching all the merch from their ship grow small in the distance and disappear. For a while, no one said a word. Their dresses, the goods for sale, all of it was gone. 
Well, good job, ladies, the princess said at last. Their ship sat a little deeper in the water now that it was full of gold and jewels. On cue, back on the island, each woman had helped each of their pirate friends sleep a little more permanently, and with the pirates gone, it was easy to unload the merch from the merchant, swap their dresses for pants and shirts, and help themselves to the pile of loot on the island. The pirates had amassed far more riches than any of them had anticipated, and so the women took only the golden jewels, but left the rest. Weathered and worn, but experienced, free, and loaded with treasure, the princess and her crew now sailed across the sea, with winds in their sails and smiles on their faces. In time, they came to yet another port and docked. With their clothes and rugged appearance, they walked through town without anyone taking notice. For once in their lives, they were one with the crowd, and it felt surprisingly good. A rowdy crowd had squeezed into the main courtyard, and one of the women asked a townsperson what it was all about. The king's dead, don't you know? A guy said. Uh, well, no. They didn't know. Just then, a large rock flew through the sky and clocked the princess in the back of her head. She yelped and turned, only to find the flying object wasn't a rock at all, but a crown, the dead king's crown. She fished it out of her cloak and held it. Huh, what was all this? The next thing she knew, royal attendants and courtiers flooded in from all directions, pointing and cheering at the princess. Long live the king, he's the new king! Shouts came from every direction as the nobles ushered the princess, who they apparently thought was a man, out of the courtyard and into the castle so the queen could have a good look at the chosen one. You see, the city's custom was this. If the king died and was survived by the queen, the queen went to the palace roof, tossed the king's crown into the crowd, and whoever the crown landed on was declared the replacement king. Yes, literally any man on the street capable of catching a crown or having one land on him was more preferable to the realm than the queen being in charge. Nothing to read into there. And on this day, the crown had chosen the visiting princess. In silence, she sat through the former king's funeral, and when it was over, the attendants wheeled the casket away. Even before it was gone, all eyes fell on the new king with anticipation. Everyone knew the perfect chaser to a funeral was a wedding, and after a tasteful amount of time, let's say about 25 minutes, the organist changed the tune from a dirge to Here Comes the Bride. But the queen stood and held up a hand. She leaned over to the nearest noble with a concerned look. She wasn't trying to be mean, but doesn't he look a bit young? The noble shuffled and looked away. Responding was a lose-lose situation here, but let's just say everyone in the room had long since formed an opinion on the matter. The queen addressed the crowd. Honestly, she was really over the whole ruling gig. Not that they really let her do much of that anyway and was going to use this opportunity to retire. The new king could marry the top advisor's daughter instead. With a clap, the plan was official, and the wedding planners began running around changing invitations and seating charts. That night, in secret, the princess met with the advisor's daughter and revealed her true identity. Both feared what would happen when the truth eventually came out, and together they cooked up a plan. The wedding would need to be postponed, of course. And in the morning, 
the princess went to speak with the royal artists, the sculptors. She had a commission for them. Hands up. Yeah, you. You're coming with us. Trumpets sounded, and soldiers marched not one, not two, but three arrested citizens to the palace court. The decree had been as clear as it was strange, and if you broke the rule, you had to pay. Laughing, the soldiers kicked all three men to their knees, and the court fell silent, waiting to hear the heinous crimes this trio had committed. These three had broken the law, and it was utterly disgraceful. They had dared to show emotion of any kind, in public, and in response to impeccable works of art, how dare they? All around town, on every corner, and everywhere people looked, the new king had ordered a placement of a bust in his likeness. He'd ordered so many of these things that the royal artist had chiseled hundreds of statues. They turned out well. The rule was that nobody, and I mean nobody, could make a scene about how these sculptures looked. If you did, you ended up right where this trio stood, in court and in major trouble. I recognize you, your majesty, said one. I have searched far and wide for you, said another. The third remained overtaken by emotion, but smiled as his eyes welled with tears. Each was asked to share his story, and so they did. It was the dethroned king, the disowned son, and the husband-to-be foretold by the sorcerer many years ago. Each had found their way to this very city, and when they saw the king's chiseled, chiseled jawline, his brow, his cheeks, eyes, the whole image, it couldn't be mistaken. It was the princess underneath. Naturally, one started dancing in the street, one shouted with joy, and one had fallen to his knees, weeping. I see, the princess said. She and the advisor's daughter stood and addressed the crowd. There would be no sentencing on this day, for these citizens had done exactly what she had hoped. The princess took off her hat, and the crowd gasped. Wait, their new king was a princess? This was crazy. How had they not known she was a princess the entire time with just a hat? A woman, ruling. Well, this challenged their prejudices in a way that made them think differently about the world. Come to think of it, it was kind of mind-blowing how a simple hat changed a person. Half the people never would have believed it had they not witnessed the transformation with their own eyes. And so, the princess came down from the throne and stood before the displaced king. The noble daughters were here, she explained, and if he invited them home with him, the angry nobles would surely accept him back into their city. Next, she stood before the merchant's son. He had lost his father's merchandise and ship, but if he took hers, now laden with gold and precious gemstones, worth far more than t-shirts, sticker packs, and posters, his father was sure to welcome him back with open arms. Then, at last, the princess stood before the prince, her fiancé, her lost love. He had somehow followed her escapades, always a step or two behind, but he never gave up. Did you know we're here because of a sorcerer? He whispered. Not now. Give me my ring, she whispered back. Then, clearing her throat, the princess told her entire story to the court, the advisors and nobles, and all who would listen. 
she showed them her royal ring that ID'd her as a true princess. At the end of her tale, the crowd stood and erupted in applause. A princess? A king? Who cared? A royal with character. That was all they saw. The queen stepped from the sidelines and invited the prince and princess to step to the throne. The land needed just and kind rulers, and they had found them in this couple. And so it was that the merchant's son returned home, the displaced king ruled again, and the pirate princess and her prince married and ruled a kingdom together after much hardship and suffering, just as the sorcerer said. And that's the story of the pirate princess, inspired by the 19th century work penned originally by Rabbi Nachman of Bratzlov. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to support the show, there's a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a plastic, battery-operated, yodeling pickle, you can get ad-free versions of the show and special bonus episodes that will also give you hours of entertainment without a briny odor. But, you know, doesn't include yodeling. So, sorry about that. For more info on the membership, check out mythpodcast.com membership. The creature this week is the monopod from Greek and Roman mythology. Now, we're of course not talking about the single-footed camera stabilizer, great for on-the-go photographers. Although if you slap a pair of googly eyes in your monopod, like we did, it does kind of seem like it comes alive. No, today we're talking about the monopod creature, which, as you can imagine, is a one-footed creature, also known as a sciapod, or shadow foot. Basically, it looks like a human on top, but below the waist, it tapers into one enormous thigh, a calf muscle, and the biggest foot you can imagine. Like, think of the biggest foot you've ever seen, not even close. Because have you ever seen a foot the size of an umbrella? Exactly. In looking up pictures of the monopod, three conclusions can be made. One, it appears difficult for the monopod to find suitable clothing. It's often drawn wearing nothing at all. Although, maybe it's just laundry day in every drawing. Who's to say? Secondly, this creature loves to do yoga. Loves. It's always drawn holding its leg straight up in the air, like you'd hold an umbrella or a parasol, hence the shadow foot name. Still, that's some serious flexibility that would put any of the Apple fitness trainers to shame, like Greg Molly. Have you seen this thing? Anyway, it's usually contorted in some impossible hold that gets the artist out of drawing that awkward area between the thigh and hips. That's probably on purpose, but can you blame them? Lastly, you might be tempted to think that the monopod has a hard time getting around, namely because it's often drawn sitting down or falling on its back. But that's where you'd be wrong, because the monopod is surprisingly agile and good at jumping, or rather hopping. Although, since hopping is using only one leg and jumping is using all legs for the monopod, a jump and a hop are one and the same. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.